Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll get a timely update on the COVID-19 pandemic. Cases are rising again across the country, even as concerns mount over the potential impact of a new Omicron variant. We'll discuss the outlook with Dr. Jody Guest, an epidemiologist and professor at the Rollins School of Public Health and School of Medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Jody also serves as an advisor to the Centers for Disease Control. Then we'll turn our attention back to Washington and to another problem that we just can't seem to get rid of, and that's the federal debt limit. Our guest for this segment is Rachel Snyderman, an associate director with the Bipartisan Policy Center's Economic Policy Project. Joining me and Dr. Guest for the COVID-19 discussion are Concord Coalition National Field Director Phil Smith, adding another Georgian voice to the program, and Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris, whose past experience includes overseeing communications and government relations, for the Connecticut Department of Public Health during the first year of this pandemic. Jody, Av, and Phil, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Uh, well, uh, Jody, uh, uh, good to have you back. I'm going to pass the microphone to Av and uh, Phil for most of the questioning. But first, I wanted to make an observation about why this subject is so important to the Concord Coalition. Uh, you know, it's been clear over the past uh, couple of years now that attempts to mitigate the health and economic damage from COVID-19 has had a profound effect on the federal budget. You can look at that by just seeing that the annual budget deficit was $984 billion in 2019 before the pandemic hit. Now, that was already quite a, a large deficit. Uh, but in 2020, it went up to $3.1 tri and then was almost $3 trillion again last year. So what all this means uh, for the budget is that the, the budget is unlikely to recover until the economy recovers fully. And the economy isn't going to fully recover until we get the pandemic in the rearview mirror. And uh, so healthcare indicators have really become uh, economic and budgetary indicators. And so we budget watchers at the Concord Coalition turn our lonely eyes to you for an update on uh, what we can expect. Av, um, <clears throat> do you want to get us started? Absolutely. And thanks. Thanks, Bob. And thank you, Dr. Guest, for, for joining us to talk about this very important topic. And I can remember um, w working in the uh, Connecticut Department of Public Health, hearing about a new virus spreading rapidly in December of 2019. And when that became a pandemic, um, the the virus got its got its name in in in, in the informal uh, term of COVID nineteen, and then we had twenty twenty, and now we have twenty twenty one, and now we're looking at COVID twenty two. 
So my first question to you is, I mean, did you think we would be here again uh, six months ago? I did not. And I didn't want to be here. Um, you know, I think the saddest part right now is that where we are feels super preventable. And, um, and, and that's very, very disappointing. So uh, let me ask you this. Uh, there's a lot of reporting right now about the new Omicron variant. Um, and you see a lot of fear um, with this new variant that we've just discovered. You also seem to see some preliminary reports indicating that it's going to be similar to the Delta variant um, and that maybe we don't need to fear as much. Um, so tell us everything we need to know about the new variant. Well, mostly what we know is that we don't know everything yet. Um, this is super early to know about this variant. And I'm going to start with thanking all the scientists and researchers in South Africa. If they had not raised the warning flag so quickly and shared their data so transparently with the rest of the world, we would not have any of the information that we currently have. So we owe them a huge debt of gratitude. Um, what we what we don't know yet is how well the vaccines work, and we do not know for sure yet how severe illness might be with this and how transmissible it is, but we're getting some signals, and the signals start with transmissibility. It does appear that this is a very transmissible variant. If it's more transmissible than Delta or not, we're no, we don't have that answer fully yet, but we are getting very clear information that people who have natural infection had natural infection and some level of immunity from that are very likely to be um, reinfected with this particular variant. So the natural antibodies that you got from being infected before do not appear to be particularly protective with this, which is why vaccines are continue to be such an important conversation. Because we're also seeing more infections in people who had um, a previous infection but we're not vaccinated, that gives us a lot of hope that our vaccines are going to continue to work well against this variant. Probably um, we should anticipate that they're going to work about as effectively as they did with Delta, maybe a little bit less. But I want to remind everyone, the way they work against Delta is still better than we ever had hoped for before we got these vaccines. So we are still in a very, very good spot with these vaccinations, and they are incredibly important. We also, I want to caution us that a lot of our data that we have right now is in younger people, and we don't know for sure if that's because this infection is somehow reinfecting younger people more or if it's a lack of vaccinations in this community, but that's also where we're getting most of our data about the severity of illness in and across the board on average, we've seen younger people do better with this infection than older people. So there's perhaps a bit of bias in that information that we have right now, but we can hope that if it's more transmissible, which we think it might be, if it's also associated with milder disease, if you've been infected, that's okay. We can handle this. So um, sounds like what you're saying is from the first looks at this new variant, definitely more transmissible. So more people would get sick. We don't know if it's more deadly, more virulent, if it's going to lead to more hospitalizations and deaths. Do I have that right? 
You do. We, just because we don't have enough information about it yet, the the limited data that we have for hospitalizations in South Africa, again, because they're sharing their data so quickly with us, is that a lot of people, most of the people in the hospital are younger and they are not as sick as we've seen in previous waves and they're less likely to be in the ICU and on ventilators. We don't know for sure that that's all Omicron that's in the hospitals, but it probably is because they had very small amounts of transmission of Delta by the time um, Omicron was hitting in South Africa. And I, I'm sure we're going to get to U.S. data, but I want to I want to point out they were in a very good spot with Delta. We are not. And so mm. we should be talking about the Delta variant in the United States. So um, I want to give you a picture of where I'm sitting. I, I'm in New Hampshire. We are now the, the number one state with the highest number of infections per 100,000, if you look at the seven-day data, uh, average yeah. data. So, um, and what I would tell you is it's almost like there are parallel universes here, right? You have, um, I, I, I think it's safe to say, you know, when the vaccines came out about a year ago and millions of Americans started to get their shots, I think everybody was breathing a sigh of relief. Um, we're finally going to get to shut down this virus as president Biden promised during the campaign, although it's a very dangerous thing to promise. Um, you know, and then in spring, early summer, uh, things seem to be getting better. People could get vaccinated. People could get together without wearing masks. And then the Delta variant hit and then cases were on the rise again, hospitalizations, deaths. Um, then boosters came out. Uh, so people got more hope with the boosters. And now we have a new variant. But um, I think people are very, very tired. There's a fatigue with this. Um, and there's two reactions to that fatigue. Some people um, want to just be done with this and they just want to go back to having fun again. And I see them all over the place here. They're not wearing masks when they go to the store. They're crowding bars and restaurants. They're going to indoor concerts with thousands of people not wearing masks, having holiday parties with all kinds of people. And then it's almost a parallel universe. Then there are those who won't leave the house unless they're double masked. <laughs> they will not get together with people they don't know or are, are vaccinated. Um, they're not going to restaurants or bars. They're not doing concerts. And it's almost like we're back in the early days when we had no vaccines and, um, and, and, and they're staying in their homes. So I guess my question to you as an epidemiologist is, so, so which is it? What should we be doing? Well, I wish we were all in lockstep a bit more together. If we were, we would be in a better place. Um, it is the fact that we are not coalescing around the idea that my infection um, is important to you and your infections are important to me and that we're all in this together. That's why we're still battling this. And that's why the United States consistently is having the highest number of cases per population in the world. We have not gotten into this together and realized that this is a community event that we all need to be watching out for each other. Um, and, and that's sad. I will say that's very sad. I'm super tired of this virus, um, but it doesn't mean the virus is done. And frankly, us being tired of it and pretending like it doesn't exist is the reason why we still have so much of it in the United States. We don't need to be in a lockdown situation. We're way past that because of our vaccinations, but we could be in a much better place if we had higher levels of vaccination. We also could be in a much better place if we 
continued with some of our public health preventions that we know work really well against this virus. We know that masking works. We know that um, not being in crowded situations with people who are not yet vaccinated is safer. We know that outdoors is safer. You know, so um, I think as we see cases going up across the United States again, this is not Omicron that we're seeing. We don't have enough of it here yet for this to be the reason we're seeing numbers go up. This is still Delta that we're fighting with. And we're going to be an interesting experiment in the United States to see if Omicron takes over Delta, because in South Africa, there wasn't very much Delta to take over. So that is why Omicron is exploding there. You know, if we should hope Omicron is more mild, even if it's more transmissible, and then we will want it to take over Delta. But we just don't know that yet. But what we do know is that we are suffering from Delta in the United States. And we are, we, yesterday we lost 1,660 people who died of the Delta variant in the United States. And, those, and everyone who's dying is, has a very, very strong likelihood that they were not vaccinated. And those who are dying who are vaccinated are older and have underlying conditions that put them at increased risk. And so we just need to recognize that we've got some tools to fight this. And if we all got in this together, we would not be doing this forever. I want to turn to my uh, colleague, Phil Smith, who's in your neck of the woods. Uh, in Georgia, um, and uh, and he's got some an interesting take and, and and some interesting questions as well. Thank you, Av, and good morning from Athens, Georgia. And uh, Jody, you said something one time uh, in a, one of our recent shows that really uh, rang true. I thought it was almost like a Yogi Berra quote, uh, and that is, "People are worth more alive." than they are worth dead. And that seems to be such an obvious thing, but it really, you know, I think about the, the, the intersection of your work as an epidemiologist and, and our work in federal budget policy. And that's definitely the truth in federal budget, right? We need people to be producers. We need people to be alive and working and so forth. And, it's, and, and I share your frustrations. I hear your frustrations too in your voice. We talk a lot about deficits at the Conquer Coalition, but I guess maybe one of the biggest deficits of all is this deficit of public trust. Uh -huh. And you've been having to deal with that. We've been dealing with it for years. You know, there's all these myths about the federal budget. Like, uh, you know, so many people believe if we just get rid of foreign aid, you know, we could solve all, all of our budget problems, whereas foreign aid is only like 1% of the budget, right? So that's our, one of our biggest myths. I know you deal with myths all the time. So my question is, I know that science isn't broken, but it seems like our information systems are. What are you doing and, and what can we learn from you to combat all of this misinformation. And, and I see a lot of your work in specific communities here in Georgia, uh, but could you share with us, you know, some of what you're doing to combat this epidemic of misinformation? Yeah. So, you know, it, it is unfortunate how um, inaccurate information gets circulated and shared so widely on the internet. And so, you know, there's a, a need to put out really good information all the time and make sure that it's consistent and that it's digestible and that when we change the information that we thought we knew, we've learned something new, that we explain we've learned something new. And, um, and that that is the, the path of science is to be iterative and to consistently learn. And that's us doing our jobs. The, um, the work on the ground, um, the work to be in the community vaccinating and, and giving COVID tests, which are still incredibly important, 
that's a little bit different. That is instead of let me give you a bunch of information. I really think the best way to approach people who've not yet gotten vaccinated is to ask what their questions are. And so rather than me pouring information at them, I would rather know what's your reason? What is your why for why you're still hesitant and not certain about vaccines? And then that gives me a place to go. And it's more of a conversation. Um, I really do believe that um, each individual conversation matters. And each individual conversation is a place to seed some new information, seed appropriate information. And, um, and sometimes repetition is really important, but I think showing that it matters, like everyone's vaccination status, I really care. Like, I really care when I'm in a community that everyone there is, is protected. And I have no other ulterior motive other than I want us to all move forward out of this. And so, um, so I care what their, their why is. And when you, when you lead with that, I think you get further. That's fascinating. And I think you're right. We've learned too, that when we hold experiential events mm -hmm. and when people actually are at something, they're much more likely uh, to listen. And so I, I really take your point uh, quite seriously and appreciate that off. So we only have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to ask you if there's any cause for hope in your opinion uh, with the some of the reports we're seeing about uh, some of the antiviral drugs um, mm -hmm. that are coming out of uh, Pfizer and Merck, I believe have have I don't know if they're, they've been released yet or they're talking about trying to get FDA approval, but which would mean that even for those who are infected who are not vaccinated, if in theory anyway, if they if they took these drugs, that this would be a much less serious illness that it would might cut down on hospitalizations and deaths. Um, is there any cause for hope there? Absolutely. Those drugs are important. Um, I, I want to make sure that we put them in the right spot. They are for people who end up with COVID-19. They are not a form of prevention. But if you get COVID-19 and you and you get tested to know you have it, so you know they have to be given in the first couple of days, they, the data looks fantastic. And I'll give a shout out and a plug to Emory where I work that discovered molnupiravir, which is the, the Merck antiviral that's um, going to be reviewed for emergency use authorization. So they're really important and they're going to be very easy to transport across the world, um, which is also an important thing for us to make sure that we're looking at because monoclonal antibodies are much more time intensive and expensive and require hospitalization or at least um, being in a medical facility to get. So this is gonna be an easier version of that. But again, getting COVID-19, even if you can get treated with one of these pills comes with some serious risk for long-term complications of COVID. So our very best bet is to not get it and you're doing two things. You're protecting yourself from potential long-term, long COVID conditions, but you're also not giving the virus another place to mutate. Mutations have not been our friend with this virus. They have not mutated to make this less effective. And so we really need to remember that every vaccination is a place that we're stopping the spread of COVID-19 and stopping mutations. Well, th thank you very much for all of your information, uh, Dr. Guest, and also thank you for all the work that you do. Uh, I think we have come to 
appreciate the work of epidemiologists and public health folks during this pandemic so much more. At least, at least I have. I hope others have too. Thanks Absolutely. for that. I hope, I hope I go back to a place where no one wants to talk to me again soon. <laughs> well, well, Jody, you're always welcome to come back on Facing the Future, but uh, hopefully there won't be a reason to talk to you about uh, COVID uh, in the future. But I'm, I'm afraid, uh, based on this today's discussion, that we probably will be hearing from you again. Uh, that's all for this segment, though. Um, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I've Harris, Phil Smith, and I have been talking with Dr. Jody Guest, epidemiologist and professor at Emory University, about the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I will discuss the impending debt limit crisis with Rachel Snyderman, Associate Director of the Economic Policy Project at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Uh, Snyderman joined the BPC following uh, service with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the Department of Commerce, and the Office of Management and Budget. She earned her BA in Economics and Latin American Studies from Wesley College, Wellesley, excuse me, College, and holds an MA from John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Rachel and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thank you so much for having me. Well, um, Let's start with some background, uh, just basically how much debt does the federal government owe right now? And can you put that in historical context? Of course, thanks. So the federal government right now um, has about $29 trillion um, in debt. And so to put that really into context, that is nearly the size of our economy, almost 100% of, of GDP. Um, and to kind of really put some historical flavor for that, um, the United States has only exceeded a debt level um, of 102% of GDP just twice in U.S. history, um, both times during World War II. And so we're really in uncharted territory right now in terms of just the size and the ballooning, the ballooning of, um, the federal, of our federal debt level. Okay, so uh, people who follow Congress and the financial markets, um, have been very concerned about something called the statutory debt limit and uh, um, or debt uh, debt ceiling. Some, but anyway, what is it? Just briefly, what is this thing? Of course, it's a really complicated topic, and you know it comes up really every few years, most recently every few months. And so, it's really important to first kind of highlight that on average, the United States government is taking in. Um, less revenue, and then what it's spending and the bills that are coming due each and every day. And so really to finance this difference, um, the United States government has to issue debt. And so the Treasury Department issues debt, but to be able to do so, it has to do so under a certain limit that is set statutorily by Congress. And so when the Treasury Department exceeds this level, it has to go to Congress to request either to raise the debt level or to suspend it. And so that's really where we're at right now, where the Treasury Department is has hit this level and it needs Congress to take action, whereby either to, to raise the amount of money that we're able to borrow or to suspend that limit for a certain period of time, just so that the United States government is able to pay if the bills that have come due in full and on time and so that we don't default on our national debt. 
And one more question uh, before I uh, turn it over to Tori. Um, seems to me that we had this debt limit crisis in September. Uh, we went through all of this and now we're going through it again. Why again so fast? So we certainly did. Um, you know, just a few months back, uh, the United States Congress and the White House reached an agreement to, to increase the debt limit um, by about $480 billion in, on October 14th. And that had really fallen weeks and really months of political jockeying about what to do with the debt limit. Um, and that was really the result of the fact that prior to that um, debt limit increase in October, the debt limit had been suspended for actually for two years, from August of 2019 until August of 2021. And so when the debt limit was reinstated, so the United States was facing a debt limit once again, um, when that was reinstated, the government then um, immediately hit that debt limit. And so Congress needed to take action. And so we really had a few months, weeks and months there where Congress had kind of dug its heels into its partisan battles and um, and there was very little compromise kind of across the um, across the aisle. But what once there finally was, there was a breakthrough in the stalemate um, in October. That debt limit was only temporarily extended until December. Um, and so right now we're right where we were just a few months back. Um, that $480 billion that Congress had determined they thought could get us just to um, kind of the window we're in now, um, the beginning of really the December calendar. And, um, and so that's really right now where, where the, we were just picking up on um, the can being kicked down the road just a few months. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm curious, um, what, what is it about the debt limit that should concern everyday Americans? Does something bad happen when we reach the debt limit? It does. And again, I think that this is something that can many times kind of get lost in the shuffle of the competing priorities that are coming across lawmakers' desks each and every day and the many different types of policy issues that households are facing um, on a daily basis as well. But if the United States government finds itself in a position where it is unable to pay all of its bills in full and on time, that could have massive repercussions for American taxpayers and the global economy. For example, families who depend on, um, who interact with the government on a daily basis, whether or not it's receiving their pay as military service members, government employees, perhaps um, veterans or retired uh, civil service employees who receive their benefits from the federal government, individuals who um, partake in different types of government programs, such as Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, those types of payments, if the government is not able to make them in full and on time, those households could, could see those payments missed and could immediately face severe income shocks. Um, and so it's really important when we think about the debt limit that um, this would really be the government not being able to make really hundreds of millions of payments that American taxpayers depend on. And if you think about kind of the global context of this, one of the strongest um, you know, the strongest economy in the world um, not being able to fulfill its financial obligations to its own taxpayers and its creditors around the world, that could really send financial markets tumbling, which could have immediately immediate impacts on the stock market, individuals, retirement accounts, education savings programs. Um, and this could only, of course, then increase borrowing costs that mm -hmm. um, we all face when we take on new loans, new types of new lines of credit. 
And so the ripple effects would just could just have the potential to just be enormous. And I'd say, you know, um, underscoring all of this is that we would really be in uncharted territory. Um, this is really in modern history, not something that we've faced. And so trying to estimate and understand some of these economic repercussions and impacts, um, it's difficult, but we know that they would be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. So at the top of the show, you talked about how, uh, you know, Congress passed a temporary fix earlier this year and uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has is sort of knocking on Congress's door again, saying, hello, it's time to address the debt limit again. Um, I know that you and your colleagues at the Bipartisan Policy Center have developed a model that can predict what you guys call the X date, you know, basically the date at which the federal government runs out of cash. Um, so I'm curious, what does your model tell you about the federal government's finances? No, thanks for bringing that in, because this is a topic that the Bipartisan Policy Center has been has spent really over the past 10 decade, uh, the past 10 years, past decade and really um, every day over the past months analyzing very closely. And so right now what we see is that the Secretary Yellen has determined that after December 15th, things get really dicey, Um, the uh, that this potential to face of facing default and mispayments. increases exponentially. What our model is telling us from looking at really this the same type of data, so incoming cash flow data, or really daily cash flow data, for, so looking at incoming payments, outgoing payments of the federal government, we estimate right now that this date could actually fall anywhere within a window from December 21st until January 28th. Mm-hmm. And the reason why this window is, is um, well, why it's a window and not a particular mm-hmm. date, if you will, is because there's a lot of uncertainty. We're trying to look at millions of payments and estimate millions of payments coming in and going out of the federal government every single day. Um, and we're also in this period of heightened economic uncertainty stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic and the subsequent economic recovery. And so it's make, it's very difficult to be able to project future cash flows of the federal government based on, um, I mean, not only, of course, using historical data, but but just trying to understand what's happening in the markets every single day right now. Mm-hmm. So people, in, including most importantly, lawmakers in Washington, D.C., who are responsible for addressing this issue, sometimes they can be pretty uh, pessimistic, if you will, about predictions. Um, you know, you look at pollsters who predict election results and meteorologists who predict the weather and economists who predict job market results. You know, sometimes they give uh, forecasting a bad reputation. How confident are you in your X date model and why? I, and and I know that you alluded, I wanted to touch specifically about you were talking about, you know, cash flow data. I'm assuming there is some a rather robust historical record for some of, of the inflows, the daily inflows and outflows, dates in which estimated taxes are due, you know, big inflows of revenues, but also when social security payments are, are cut, checks are cut, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the, the robustness, if you will, of the data that you use to, to, to run your model? Of course. Um, and thanks for that question, because it's always fun to, to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say, you know, to answer the first part of your question, we are fairly confident that the X date will arrive within this window of December 21st and, to, and January 28th. And the reason why we provide this window is to really be able to alert policymakers to the range of potential options that could exist, um, whereby they need to take action beforehand. So really depending on kind of 
how revenue, how strong revenues are coming in, perhaps how weak they might be, um, whether or not, for example, we might see an economic slowdown um, because of a new COVID-19 variant, for example. We really tried to factor in to our model kind of a range of um, different pessimistic to optimistic economic projections that could allow an X date um, or a date by which the United States government finds itself unable to pay all of its bills in time. Um, we all really a range whereby that could that could occur. Um, and so, um, as, as you alluded to, there are some really particular dates. Um, and because of the COVID-19 pandemic, some areas that we really focused on this year, for example, looking on um, the 15th of every month and trying to understand really the impact of some of the corporate revenue data, as we've seen over the past year um, and really over the past six months, if you will. And um, corporate revenues have come in stronger than many economists anticipated. And so that has played directly into um, our model being able to kind of project a, um, kind of being able to project out, um, uh, to delay the, the X date, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, whereas exactly as you noted, the, the first of the month and the third of the month, when some of these really large payments come due, um, such as interest, um, on treasury securities, social security payments, some large payments for, for Medicare, being able to pay um, all of our defense contractors in full and on time. Um, and, and so we're really trying to understand and estimate based off of historical cash flows, some of the size of these payments, um, their frequency, so whether or not they're being paid on a, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on a biweekly basis, but also being able to just understand kind of the size and the enormity of which um, they need to be paid and the revenues that need to come in the door to be able to, to make such payments due in full and on time. Mm -hmm. um, and You're, oh, I was just going to say, uh, hold that thought. You're listening to Facing <laughs> the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Rachel Snyderman of the Bipartisan Policy Center about the looming debt limit crisis. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Rachel Snyderman, Associate Director of the Economic Policy Project at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We're discussing the looming crisis on the federal debt limit. Well, we talked a lot uh, in the earlier segment about what the debt limit is and kind of what some of the consequences might be if, uh, if it was uh, breached. Um, so... Why is it so difficult? <laughs> this is like seems like a no brainer. Uh, so what are the politics? Obviously, there's got to be some other explanation. That it seems to me it might be political. What, what are some of the political challenges of raising or suspending the debt limit? Certainly. So it's important to note that throughout history, the debt limit has been raised or suspended really dozens of times by administrations and Congresses who have been under control of both parties. And many times throughout history, we've seen this solved on a bipartisan basis. It's really been over the past decade or so, that we've really seen kind of the partisan divide exacerbate um, on this issue, if you will. And a lot of that has been over debates about um, how much to cut taxes or raise taxes, how much to increase federal spending by. And so there have been a lot of kind of these partisan debates tying the debt limit particularly to new spending bills or new tax cut bills, but it's really important to emphasize that the debt limit actually doesn't um, 
uh, doesn't set new spending limits or um, it really just allows the government to pay for the bills that have come due. So to pay for the policies that have been put in place by past Congresses and past administrations. So it's really important to kind of emphasize that difference in the debt limit um, from one from from those that we have um, on appropriations and federal spending levels, um, and especially as we as we think about um, this just really this really debate about fiscal responsibility and setting the United States on a sustainable fiscal path. Yeah. So the the debt limit, oddly enough, given its name, doesn't really. Limit the debt. <laughs> yeah, it I mean, Congress authorizes the spending and the revenue and the debt gets produced. And and then, well, the debt limit says is you can't pay the bills that that you've, in effect, authorized, which is a kind of a dysfunctional thing. Um, exactly. We've really seen the political brinkmanship over the issue of the debt limit only exacerbate you know, the, the fiscal challenges that have been created by, by such brinkmanship, right? So just yes. um, allowing these crises to play over and over again, have royal financial markets, certainly increase uncertainty and costs for taxpayers, but we're really avoiding having the real debate about setting our country back on a sustainable fiscal path, which is really what the debt limit um, you know, should be about. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's um, I mean, if you're, if it's a politically embarrassing vote to 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 raise the debt limit, stop uh, supporting the policies that produce so much debt in the first place. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, a, a little a trip down history lane here. And that is, you know, the, the debt limit was created to make government work more efficiently. You know, it used to be a long, long time ago. Every time we had to issue debt, Treasury had to come to Congress and get authorization and they kept having to come over and over and over again. So Congress said, hey, we don't have time to deal with all of these bills all the time. Why don't we just give you guys a limit? And so Treasury, you can go off and issue debt up until this limit and then come back to us when you need us to review this again. So, you know, its original purpose of the debt limit was to help government operate efficiently, which is kind of funny because right now it's having the exact opposite effect. I couldn't have said it better. I completely agree with you. So um, before we talk about more of a long-term fix, we got a fast approaching crisis here, according to uh, the Treasury Secretary, who's a little bit more pessimistic on this than, uh, than you folks at the Bipartisan Policy Center. But do you have any insight on what they're going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Just not, not a long-term fix, but just what are they going to do to get out of December? Yeah, so I, I will say, you know, I'm a bit more optimistic um, you know, this month than I was a, a, the past few months when we saw this debate play itself out in September and October earlier this year. And a lot of that's because um, I don't think that we've seen kind of the political, um, the, the, the public political battles, if you will, that we really saw play out in October. Right now, everything that we're kind of hearing from Capitol Hill is that there is perhaps maybe possibly hopefully a greater chance of a bipartisan solution. Um, we haven't really seen kind of some of these broad big statements saying that Democrats have the votes to go at this alone. Republicans aren't going to help um, in any which way, which is really the rhetoric that we saw just a few just a few months ago um, when a solution was finally reached in October. Um, but after which, of course, we already saw some of the immediate impacts um, in terms of you know, rising interest rates on Treasury securities. Um, and uncertainty in financial markets like already really already playing out. 
And so my hope, of course, is that there will be some sort of bipartisan solution um, in the days and weeks ahead. There's been there have been some rumors on Capitol Hill that the debt limit might get tacked into the reauthorization of the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, so really, time will tell, though, how those negotiations might play out. Um, Democrats obviously have an opportunity to kind of to rope in the debt limit to their Build Back Better reconciliation bill, which was really the stance that Republicans had taken back in October. Um, but I, I right now, it, what we know is that the clock is ticking. Congress needs to take action. Um, we strongly believe that Congress needs to take action before the holiday recess. And we know that there are available legislative vehicles for them to do so. Um, my hope is that they will do so efficiently um, on a bipartisan basis and one in which will be done well in advance of the December 21st kind of start to BPC's ex-state range, which goes through January 28th, um, to ensure that the full faith and credit of the United States is upheld. Mm-hmm. So watching the brinksmanship on the debt limit, is kind of like Groundhog Day all over again. You know, it seems we have to go through this yes. every doggone time. So you've, you've studied a lot about, obviously, about Congress, but also about the debt limit. Do you have any suggestions, ideas, proposals for how do we reform this process? So it's, it's less a, there's less hostage taking, if you will, when it comes to the debt limit and, you know, take it easy on on financial markets and everybody else. <laughs> Of course. So, I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more with that, the fa- the, with the fact that the, the process by which the debt limit has been um, addressed over the past years and over the past months, it, it truly demonstrates that it's a broken process and the time is ripe for reform. Um, what we're really excited about here at the Bipartisan Policy Center is a bill that we've endorsed that was just released by representatives Peters from California and Arrington from the state of Texas that's called the Responsible Responsible Budgeting Act. And what I'm really excited about with this bill is that first and foremost, it would de-risk the debt limit once and for all. So really take the option of a potential default of the U.S. government off of the table. And that, that's so important. It's so important for taxpayers. It's so important for our global standing in the world and to um, really ensure um, that the financial markets aren't really roiled each and every time this political brinkmanship um, comes into play, which we're seeing obviously, of course, only happen more frequently. Um, and second, it would really allow the debt limit to um, refocus and be... Um, and um, refocus the debate, if you will, on the issues of fiscal responsibility and putting, um, and putting our, our country on a sustainable fiscal path. So really trying to remove the issue of the debt limit from these partisan battles that we've seen play out time and time again. Um, and so what this bill would particularly do is that it would better align the debt limit with Congress's budgetary process. And so Congress would have the opportunity and the budget resolution that it Um, passes each April to um, address the debt limit through that. Um, And if they fail to do so, the president would have the ability to either request um, to request a debt limit suspension um, or raise the debt limit. And in doing so, would also have to provide a debt uh, reduction proposal to Congress. Now, Congress would still have the ability to override that um, uh, that power of the president. um, But what it would but what it would do is that it would allow Congress and the executive branch to really have a fulsome discussion about fiscal responsibility. Um, and again, really, while not allowing this 
potential issue of, of the U.S. government default to be on the table. It would really take that off the table um, and allow us to have um, to, to really engage about what the debt limit is supposed to do, which, as you alluded to earlier, was allowing the government to operate efficient, efficiently and to make sure that the policy priorities that we support as Americans are being adequately reflected in the amount of money that we're borrowing and the amount of money that we're collecting in tax revenue and that we're seeing go out the door in terms of our, our federal spending. So I'd, I'd like to bring this home a little bit because I'm actually very excited about this legislation. I think it's very, very, very clever. So kudos to you and your colleagues at PPC for helping to, to, to put this together. But it sounds like to me, based on this legislation, there are two tracks. One, if Congress gets its act together and passes a budget resolution according to regular order and according to the deadline, it automatically spits out uh, an increase in the debt limit and sends it off to the president. So there doesn't have to be a separate vote or anything like that. The president signs it, boom, we're off and running. Or if Congress doesn't do its job and doesn't pass a budget, the president can then unilaterally either suspend the, the debt limit for a time certain or raise the, the debt limit for a specific amount. But if the president's gonna do that, two things, Congress has the option to vote on a resolution of disapproval and disapprove of that. And of course, they need a veto proof majority to do that. But also, if the president's going to move the debt limit unilaterally, he also is or she is required to send to Congress a plan to reduce the debt as a percentage of GDP yes, by a yes. certain amount. Right. So it's yeah, not like the president. Exactly. So it's not like the president gets a free pass to lift the, 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 the debt limit or suspend it. The, the president has to put some meat on the bone and send some ideas to Congress, right? Oh, yes. No, that's exactly it's an excellent point. And I can't underscore it enough. No, this is definitely not a, you know, a, certainly not a free pass. This is it creates a significant amount of homework for the executive branch and for and for the White House. And I think um, in doing so really allows there to be you know, a debate that, that crosses party lines, um, that crosses both chambers of the House, that really involves um, all aspects of the federal government um, in this really crucial decision about, um, about how we define fiscal responsibility and how we ensure that our policies are in line with that, um, especially as we've seen over the past years that both parties have contributed um, via their policy priorities to, mm -hmm. to the mounting debt. This isn't just a Democratic or Republican issue. It's an American issue. Exactly. And so I think that definitely that's certainly what I what I'm so optimistic about this bill um, is um, but I'm so optimistic about this bill is just because it really involves it's a really all of government approach um, to, to solve I, this, this issue once and for all. I like the fact that we're taking a depressing subject and ending on an optimistic note. <laughs> uh, so. So I, I hope it works out and uh, and uh, I hope maybe we can have the uh, congressman on uh, to discuss that on on the program, the ones that are sponsoring the bill. So but for this week, I want to thank uh, thank you, Rachel, uh, for your insights onto the debt limit. And uh, thanks also to uh, Tori for joining me in this discussion. And thanks to you for tuning in. This is Bob Bixby. I'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future next week.